Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talk from the June 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. Peter Stone is a committee member of the Docklands History Group, the London Historians, and several other London clubs and societies, and is the author of the highly praised book entitled The History of the Port of London, a Vast Emporium of All Nations. So without further ado, let's venture into the Crutched Friar in the East End of London and Peter Stone. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the June 2022 meeting of the Whitechapel Society. And a particularly big welcome to our speaker this evening, Peter Stone, who will be talking to us about the history of the Port of London. Now, ever since Roman times, the River Thames has been integral to the prosperity of London. Colonies were established from ships launched from here, and the British Empire grew. And as it grew, London became the first port of call and home to many thousands who travelled here from all corners of the world, some of them even becoming suspects in the Whitechapel murders of 1888. Now, our speaker tonight has been studying London's history for the past 10 years, and during that time has written numerous articles for magazines and his website, which is thehistoryoflondon.co.uk that's all one word thehistoryoflondon.co.uk now he's particularly well qualified to talk about this subject as his family for many generations have earned their living on the river as Thames watermen now Peter just to let you know I googled Thames watermen earlier on and I found your website (laughs) Um, and I must say I think it's an absolutely incredible resource It covers the history of London from Roman times right through to the late 20th century, as well as details on the bridges of London, religion and churches, and famous London people. So if you have an opportunity, it's an excellent website um, to check out. Uh, One thing I did find when I was there was um, whenever a bridge was proposed across the River Thames, there was a petition against it from watermen and the ferry owners, because obviously that would affect their living. And that was one of the reasons why London Bridge remained the only crossing until the early 18th century. So Peter is also the author of a book called The History of the Port of London, a Vast Emporium of All Nations. And this is the subject of tonight's talk. And like me, I'm sure you're all looking forward to hearing all about it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter... Okay, thanks very much. Great, well, thanks, good evening, and thanks for inviting me to the Whitechapel Society. Um, It was while studying the development of London that I realised how integral the Thames and its shipping were to London's growth into a major city. As far back as the Romans, London prospered because of its position as an inland port on the Thames. By the 19th century, the port was the largest in the world, and in the 1930s, over a third of Britain's trade passed through London's docks and, and riverside walls. Ocean liners also carried passengers from as far away as Australia and New Zealand. London had long been a trading place and a finance centre because it had been a port. Without the port, I suggest, London would simply not have developed into the major city it became. Despite enemy bombing during the Second World War and much destruction, a new peak of trade was reached in the 1960s. Yet within two decades, most of the port lay idle and deserted. Closure of the docks closure of the docks would appear to be the end of the story, but far from it, as I will explain later. 
What I'll do is I'll swiftly take you through the port's long history, leading up to the development of the 19th century docks and beyond. As I'm sure you all know, London was founded by the Romans, and they established the, fort, the first port of London way back in around 62 AD. But to give us more time to look at the more recent past, I'm going to skip lightly over the first century and a half, except to say that the medieval port was concentrated on walls in the city of London between London Bridge and the Tower of London. If you want to know more about the Roman, Saxon and medieval port, you can read about that, those periods in my book. So I'm going to jump to the middle of the 16th century. In the reign of Edward VI, son of Henry VIII, customs duties were increased, which made smuggling more attractive. The government's answer was the passing of new laws restricting imports and, ex and exports to a limited number of wharves in England's ports, and these wharves were known as legal keys. In London, about 20 wharves were henceforth, henceforth registered as legal keys, and they held a monopoly of imports for the next 250 years. Here are the legal keys, as they were during, in, in, 18, in 1584 during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. London had become wealthy during the Middle Ages, trading with its continental neighbours, exporting wool and importing wine and many other commodities. By the mid-16th century, cloth was, London, was England's main export, sold through the great market at Antwerp in the Spanish Netherlands by a group of London traders called the Merchant Adventurers, whose ships returned with goods produced throughout Europe and further afield. But the Tudor era was a previous Brexit period for England. First, Henry VIII renounced the authority of the Pope, and England could no longer trade with Catholic countries. Then Queen Elizabeth refused to marry King Philip of Spain. In 1563, Philip banned the sale of English cloth at Antwerp and blocked goods from the Mediterranean that were being imported via Spain. These disruptions encouraged London's overseas merchants to seek new trade routes that would enable them to buy goods directly from their source. The costs and risks of long-distance voyages were high, so joint stock companies were formed in the City of London, where investors could share the risks. In return for favours to the Crown, these companies were granted royal patents that provided monopolies on trade to certain areas. The earliest of these was the Muscovy Company, that traded with Russia and the Baltic, formed in the mid-16th century. The Levant Company was established later in the century by various merchants trading around the Mediterranean, in the early 17th century, some of the Levant traders formed the Guinea Company to trade with West Africa, initially for gold, ivory and redwood. In 1601, some Levant merchants sent ships from Woolwich to the Far East, seeking spices and silks. To provide them with an English monopoly on that trade, they obtained a charter from Elizabeth I as the East India Company. Their success led to a fundamental difference to the nation's fashion and cuisine. Fabrics such as cotton, muslin, dungaree, gingham were some of the products brought back to London. Tea came from China and later from India. The company's ships, known as East India Men, were moored downriver at Blackwall and Deptford. And by the early 18th century, their offices were in this grand building in Leadenhall Street in the city. The East India Company eventually became the world's largest and most complex trading organisation, ruling most of the Indian subcontinent and with its own army and navy. One East India governor, Sir Stamford Raffles, established Singapore and even founded London Zoo. Ships of London's Virginia Company sailed from Blackwall in 1606 and founded the colony of Jamestown in Virginia. The colonists planted black tobacco and that became a major import into London. On that same side of the world, a small group of London-based merchants, the Hudson's Bay Company, were governing what, was, what is now much of eastern Canada, shipping furs back to England. 
At one time, they were the world's largest landowner, controlling 15% of North America. The Hudson Bay Company still continues as a chain of department stores in Canada, and their shopping bags still proudly state, incorporated 2nd of May, 1670. Long-distance trade created increased traffic through the Port of London. The Thames was becoming crowded with ships. New wet docks were therefore created where they could safely moor. The first of these docks opened in 1614 by the East India Company at Blackwall. That was later sold and owned by the Perry family at the time of this painting. What would have been particularly noticeable to ships passing on, along the Thames was its tall shed there in the middle of the picture, which was used for fixing masts into, sa into sailing ships. The second dock was the Howland Wet Dock, which was a private enterprise on Rotherhithe Peninsula that opened in 1700. It was surrounded by countryside because London hadn't then stretched as far as Rotherhithe, and in the picture you can see the city in the distance on the horizon. But these docks weren't for loading and unloading goods. Cargo still had to pass through the legal quays further upriver to pay customs duty. These docks were merely a place where vessels could moor in safety and repairs carried out. It's now largely forgotten that London was a fairly major whaling port from the 17th until the mid-19th centuries. Blubber could be rendered to produce oil that was used to make soap, paint and varnish, and for street lighting. The feeding apparatus of Wales, known as baleen, is a flexible material that could be split, bonded and moulded. It was therefore used in those products where plastics and steel will be used today, particularly women's corsetry and to give chairs their springiness. The Howland Dock became one of the main points on the Thames where whales were processed and was therefore renamed the Greenland Dock in recognition of the main whaling area, and that's the name it still has today. Herman Melville published his book Moby Dick in 1851, which features the real-life Enderby fa whaling family whose premises were on the Thames at, at Paul's Wharf, roughly where the Millennium Bridge is, is now located. Incidentally, the, the person who drew this illustration has used some artistic licence because this particular whale was actually caught in the Thames estuary in 1762. Until the mid-17th century, sugar was a luxury item in Britain that was produced mainly in Portuguese colonies and imported in small quantities. That all changed when, in about 1645, plantation owners in the English colony of Barbados discovered the secrets of its production. Almost overnight, sugar became widely available in this country. Very quickly, it became the single largest commodity imported into England and the plantation owners, the wealthiest individuals in the English-speaking world. The production of sugar is actually very tough and labour-intensive, so the plantation owners imported slaves from West Africa. They were supplied by the Guinea Company, which was later succeeded by the Royal Adventurers into Africa and by the end of the 17th century, the Royal African Company. All these companies were based in London. Ships sailed from the Thames, laden with various types of merchandise that they bartered for captives on the west coast of Africa, who were then transported across the Atlantic. Those ships then returned to London with sugar and rum. The cost of buying plantations and building sugar production facilities and the purchase of slaves was possible because of credit provided by London shipping merchants. London remained the leading English slave trading port until the demise of the Royal African Company at the end of the 17th century. Thereafter, Bristol and Liverpool began to dominate the trade, but London ships still continued in the business until the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. During the entire period of the slave trade, it is estimated that over 740,000 slaves left Africa on London ships. 
With rapidly increasing trade in the 18th century, the legal keys became a major bottleneck. Ships often waited weeks to be unloaded. London writer Daniel Defoe, famous for his book Robinson Crusoe, claimed to have once counted over 2,000 ships on the river. While they lay idle, full of cargo, they were vulnerable to theft, which became a major problem. Over time, many of the sugar plantation owners in Barbados, Jamaica and other West Indian islands had made their fortunes and relocated to England, leaving their slave plantations to be managed by uh, local managers. Their extreme wealth allowed them to be pillars of English society, with many of them becoming MPs in Parliament, Lord Mayors of London and Governors of the Bank of England. They formed a powerful group known as the West India Interest, ensuring legal protection for the sugar business and for the slave trade. The West India interest was naturally concerned with the, theft of the issue of theft from ships returning to London with their cargoes. To combat the problem, in 1798, Magistrate Patrick Cahoon, together with John Harriet, created a waterborne police force. Initially known as the West India Merchants and Planters Marine Police Force, it was based at Wapping Newsteers. They were so successful that in the early 19th century, their jurisdiction was extended to cover all crime on the open river, not just West India ships. The Marine Police Force, as they were renamed, was the forerunner of London's Metropolitan Police, which was founded 30 years later, with the Thames Division becoming part of it. The Thames Police still operates today from the same location at Wapping, where they began. At the same time in the last decade of the 18th century, there were several proposals put forward to solve the problems of overcrowding on the river and theft from ships by moving the loading and unloading into enclosed wet docks. Customs duties could be paid there instead of the legal keys. The particular ideas you see here were by, by a man named Ralph Walker. A fund was launched to create such docks at Wapping, with a large number of those involved in overseas trade as subscribers. But the City of London Corporation objected because they would lose their revenue from the legal keys. So the powerful West India interest then made an agreement with the City of London to jointly create new docks exclusively for the, ship, for the ships of the slave trade that were returning to London with sugar and rum. Instead of whopping, their West India docks were created on the more rural land across the top of the Isle of Dogs between Limehouse and Blackhall and opened in 1802. In return for their huge investment, Parliament agreed that the West India docks would have a 21-year monopoly on all trade between London and the West Indies. At the same time, a separate Act of Parliament allowed that duty was only paid on goods exiting the docks. Thus, no duty was paid on any goods that were imported and then re-exported. That was important because it greatly enhanced London's position as an entrepot or freeport and gave London a huge trading boost. It's a system that was eventually extended to the whole country in the form of bonded warehouses. Within the West India docks were huge prison-like warehouses built to store goods. Those of you who have visited the Museum of Docklands will probably recognise these warehouses. To add further security, all goods leaving the docks had to pass through gates manned by the docks' own police force. This is the original Hibbert Gate, of the West India docks, topped by a replica of the ship, the Hibbert. Remember that name because I'll come back to it in a moment. The gate was eventually demolished um, when the entrance needed to be widened, but there is now an, a, an ornamental replica close to the same place. Let's think about the men who created the West India docks. George Hibbert was the first chairman of the dock company. He was an upstanding member of the establishment, an MP, and the son-in-law of the governor of the Bank of England. 
He was also a member of a leading family of Jamaican slave traders and plantation owners, making several speeches in Parliament in favour of slavery. When slavery was abolished in 1834, Parliament awarded him compensation for the loss of over 1,600 slaves. Then there was Robert Milligan. He was prominent, prominent enough in the creation of the West India Docks that a statue of him was erected, which stood there for over 200 years. Before arriving in London, Milligan had managed the family's slave plantations in Jamaica. At his death, he owned over 500 slaves. Milligan's statue stood outside the Doctors' Museum until people began to question his role in slavery, and it was removed in the summer of 2020. However, just a few yards from there is still a large plaque that celebrates Hibbert and Milligan in glowing terms. There had been much opposition to the creation of the West India Docks, not least from lightermen on the river, employed ferrying goods between ships and the legal quays. To overcome objections, a clause was included in the West India Docks Act, allowing lighters to freely enter the new docks. Ship owners therefore had an option of discharging to either dockside or onto a lighter, which could carry the cargoes out of the docks to riverside wharves. This was called the Free Water Clause, and included in the Acts of Parliament for every subsequent set of docks. It was later to have a major impact on the docks. Here is the Free Water Clause still in action more than 150 years later. When the West India Interest and the City of London agreed to create the West India docks, the remaining subscribers decided to continue with the original scheme at Wapping, which would service general cargoes. Their new docks opened in 1805. They were closer to the city than the West India docks, a point the company emphasised by calling them the London docks. They were given a 21-year monopoly on the importation of tobacco, wine, brandy and rice. As with the West India docks, the London docks were built with security in mind. Here you can see their massive external walls. The East India Company were different to the merchants who created the West India and the London docks. By then, they had been trading as a single body for 200 years. When the other two groups created their own docks, the East India Company decided to follow. They had sold their yard at Blackwell in the 17th century, but now purchased it back and enlarged it. The new East India docks, which opened in 1806, gained a 21-year monopoly on goods arriving from India and China. The West India docks um, and the London docks were each created with a large complex of warehouses. On the other hand, the East India Company had long unloaded their ships at Blackwall and ferried cargoes upriver to their secure warehouses at Cutler Street in the city. They continued to do so, so the East India docks were created without warehousing. The Cutler Street warehouses have a special place in my own family history because that's where my mother and father were working when they met and started courting back in the 1940s. While the three sets of docks were each developed by single groups of merchants over on the Rotherhithe Peninsula, on the Surrey side of the, of the river, a vast complex of docks were gradually created by competing companies incorporating the Greenland dock that we saw earlier. London was expanding in the 19th century, so there was a strong demand from the construction industry for timber. Therefore, the Surrey docks came to specialise in softwood from Canada and the Baltic. You can see here newly unloaded planks floating within the dock and grain was another speciality of the Surrey docks. In the, in the early 19th century, one commentator wrote of Eskimo Indians who arrived on timber ships from Canada and paddled their canoes around the dock. Over time, the various dock companies at Rotherhithe created a great network of docks, expanding to cover th over 300 acres. Here you see a multitude of docks, as well as timber ponds for floating logs and planks. 
On both sides of the Thames, downstream of London, were for centuries home to London's maritime communities. Ships were built and repaired at Blackwall and Deptford, and many sailors and, and those involved in shipbuilding, together with their families, lived at Stepney, Shadwell, Ratcliffe, Wapping, Poplar, Deptford and Rotherhithe. Ships leaving London were crewed by English sailors, but on long-distance voyages, it was normal for some of the crew to die during the journey. For the return of each sailing, the East India Company began hiring crew members in the Far East, and these Asian seamen became known as Laskers. While sailors of all nationalities waited in London to take on their next voyage, they normally lodged in boarding houses around Ratcliffe Highway. By the 19th century, the street consisted of many taverns, brothels and shops catering to the seamen. This sailor town area became notorious as a sordid place, particularly after the Ratcliffe Highway murders of 1811. In his book, Dottings of Odossa, written in 1886, Howard Goldschmidt wrote, Ratcliffe Highway conjures up in the mind of a nervous or impressionable person all sorts of disagreeable imaginings. Visions of swarthy Malays and thick-lipped Lascars, of drunken Jack Tars and equally drunken women flit before the eyes. The majority of good people would avoid a visit to Ratcliffe Highway as they would the devil or the tax collector. I admit that from all I've heard about it, I rather dreaded a pilgrimage thither. But having visited there, he discovered... It is a dark, unpleasant street enough, and for the diversity and intensity of its smells, would rival Cologne itself. The men are drunken and the women simply horrible, but I would rather walk down Ratcliffe Highway 20 times in ordinary attire than down Flower and Dean Street twice. As I'm sure you know, Flower and Dean Street was located just north of Whitechapel and where the third of the Ripper victims was lodging when she was murdered just two years after the publication of Goldschmidt's book. With the introduction of steamships and their more regular sailing times, as well as the foundation of various seamen's missions in the East End, the character of Ratcliffe had largely changed by the early 20th century. Chinese sailors congregated around Limehouse and Chinatown, and a Chinatown district grew just to the north of the West India docks before later moving to Soho. My mother, who lived in Limehouse in the 1940s, could remember Chinese men sitting on their doorstep, doorsteps smoking their long pipes. I said earlier that the West India, London and East India docks each had a 21-year monopoly on trade to certain parts of the world. Those rights expired in the mid-1820s, by when free trade was favoured over monopolies. London had become what was later described as the workshop of the world, and London's port was facilitating the, facilitating the import of raw materials and the export of finished goods around the British Empire and beyond. With increasing trade and, and the ending of monopolies, several businessmen and ship owners saw an opportunity for a new set of docks. But where? Between the Tower of London and the London docks at Wapping lay the precinct of St Catherine, an ancient and densely populated suburb of housing and workshops surrounding its old parish church, and that is where they decided to create the new docks. As normal, when a community would be uprooted, there was a great deal of opposition to the plan. But the developers eventually prevailed and the scheme went ahead. The entire district was demolished and a reported 11,500 tenants displaced, displaced without compensation. The new St Catherine's Docks opened in October 1828 and this was the opening ceremony. As with the West India and London Docks, St Catherine's was created with huge secure warehousing around its quaysides. 
at all three, a major part of their business was not merely simply, was not simply loading and unloading goods, but also storing, sorting, and even auctioning incoming cargoes. Being very close to the city, St. Catharines was initially very successful, but created greater competition between the dock companies with lower profits all round. The dock companies therefore looked, looked for ways to cut costs, and the easiest target was the workforce. Until then, dockers have been full-time employees, but the amount of work in the time of sailing ships varied greatly from day to day and month to month, largely dependent on the weather and direction of winds. On some days, dockers would be extremely busy, but sit around idle on other days. From the mid-19th century, to cut costs, the dock companies employed just skilled and specialist workers. The majority of dockers were hired only when work was available. Thereafter, casual workers crowded around dock gates every morning in the hope of being picked for work, and the process was called the call-on, or standing on the stones. Here's a piece by the trade union leader, Ben Tillett. The call-on generated much anger among the dockers. We are driven into a shed, iron-barred from end to end, outside of which, of which a foreman or contractor walks up and down with the air of a dealer in a cattle market, picking and choosing from a crowd of men who, in their eagerness to obtain employment, trample each other underfoot, and where, like beasts, they fight for the chances of a day's work. It may sound like a barbaric system from the Victorian period, but despite many attempts to modernise the colon, it lasted in modified form up to the 1970s, when the docks closed. This is a photo of it from 1962. With the ending of the original monopolies and, a subsequent and the subsequent opening of the system of bonded warehouses, independently owned riverside wharves began to be established from the, from the 1830s, such as these ones at Wapping. And by the 19th century, there were about 300 wharves along the river. Remember the free water clause I mentioned earlier and how ship owners had the right to discharge cargoes onto lighters? Where there are those light lighters again? By the end of the 19th century, 75% of goods arriving in the docks were being siphoned off in that way to independent riverside wharves who could offer much more competitive landing rates than the docks. That became a significant loss of income for the West India, London and St Catherine docks that were trying to earn money from warehousing. Despite increasingly fierce competition between dock companies and wharves, there were still some who believed there was an opportunity for new docks. That was especially so following the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846, which allowed the importation of cheaper grain from Canada and elsewhere. Until the mid-19th century, the centre of the Isle of Dogs, south of the West India Docks, remained largely as undeveloped as The Millwall Freehold Land and Dock Company was formed and acquired the centre of the peninsula. Their business plan was different to all previous docks, in that the L-shaped Millwall Dock was funded by leasing out the surrounding land to, to industry. Separately, the property developer William Cubitt created Cubitt Town in the southeast of the peninsula that included homes for local workers. The dock company itself operated a huge granary. Various heavy and obnoxious, obnoxious industries, together with the McDougall's flour mills, were established surrounding the dock on land leased from the dock company. By the latter part of the 19th century, the Isle of Dogs had been completely urbanised. But intense competition, overcapacity and falling profits were too much for the dock companies. To survive, they began to merge. The East India Company had lost its monopoly on trading with India and China and no longer had its own fleet of ships. 
Their East India docks also had no warehousing from which to profit. On the other hand, the West India docks had too much warehousing, so the East and West India dock companies were the first to merge in 1838. 26 years later, the St. Catherine and London dock companies merged together. The various docks at Rotherhithe also gradually merged into one to form the Surrey commercial docks. Another problem faced by dock companies was that ships were getting larger, especially after the introduction of iron-hulled, steam-powered vessels. The, docks, the, the Thames above Blackpool Reach was too shallow for these deeper ships, and the early docks were too small for them to enter. Furthermore, goods were by then carried around the country by railway, but the old docks were too hemmed in for railway tracks to reach them. Therefore, a group of railway engineers obtained an act of parliament to create a vast new dock downriver at Plasto Marshes, east of Bow Creek. The new Victoria dock was large enough for the biggest steamships of the time, with plenty of surrounding land on which to run railway lines. It was opened by Prince Albert in, in 1855 and remained independent in, for nine years before being acquired by the London and St. Catherine Dock Company. In 1869, the Suez Canal opened, great, greatly reducing the t journey time to and from the Far East and Australia by further increasing Britain's volume of trade. But by then, Liverpool had superior facilities com compared to London. London needed, needed to up its game, so the London and St. Catherine Company decided to greatly increase sp space at Plasto with another new dock linked to their Victoria dock. Queen Victoria gave permission to name it after her late husband and add Royal to the name of the existing Victoria dock. The vast Royal Albert dock opened in 1879, a massive one and three quarter miles in length. The London and St. Catherine Company now had the successful Deepwater Royal docks, but the East and West India Company were struggling with their, with their outdated upriver docks. Their radical response was to create a huge new set of docks 26 miles downriver of London on marshes at Tilbury. The advantage of the Tilbury docks was that an entire day was saved in either direction along the Thames for passengers or freight that transferred from there onto railways. Tilbury was then an extremely isolated location, but connected to London and the rest of the country by rail, through, through Fenchurch Street, just around the corner, of course. By the opening of the but the opening of the Tilbury docks in 1886 created such intense competition between the London and St. Catharines, the East and West India, and the Thames Wharves that no one was profiting, was, was making any substantial profit. Two years later, Tilbury's owners, the East and West India Dock Company, fell into administration eventually merging with the London and St. Catherine Company, leaving just three dock companies. The call-on system made dock work irregular, which caused much poverty for dockers and their families, and it was hardly better for many in East London. In 1888, the female workers at the Bryant and May Match Factory at Bow went on strike for better con conditions. The following year, the National Union of Gas Workers was formed, and a successful strike took place at the Beckton Gas Works on the Thames near the Royal Docks. Two men who became important in the early dock workers' unions were Ben Tillett and John Burns, both eloquent speakers. Burns once told an, an American and a Canadian, Your St. Lawrence is just water, and your Mississippi plain mud, but the Thames is liquid history. Liquid history was a phrase that stuck, has often been used since to describe the river. In 1889, the same year as the Beckton Gasworks strike, Tillett heard of a dispute taking place 
during the unloading of a ship at the West India docks, and he gathered together other union activists to organise a strike. The entire labour force of the East and West India docks walked out. It was estimated that within days, 70,000 port workers had joined them in what was Britain's first great industrial action. Up to 10,000 strikers marched each day from the East End to the city. Burns, Tillett and others fought the management of the dock companies for better conditions and an increase in, in the rate of pay to six pence per hour, or a tanner, as six pence was known back then. In one speech, Burns described the pay rate as the docker's tanner, and this became the rallying cry of the Great Strike. For weeks, there was a lack of compromise from the dock management until the intervention of 81-year-old Cardinal Henry Manning, Catholic Archbishop of Westminster. He became the mediator who, who brought both sides together, resulting in the dockers getting their tanner per hour. At the end of the 19th century, London was the largest port in the world, with a vast amount of shipping arriving and leaving to and from the four corners of the planet. Yet no one was prospering from, from its success, neither shareholders nor the workers. The cash-strapped dock companies were unable to invest in new facilities, and shipping was moving, moving elsewhere, particularly to Liverpool. In 1900, the government set up a commission to consider the problem. Two years later, they concluded that the London dock should be nationalised, with a new body that would also control the tidal, tidal Thames to be known as the Port of London Authority. Discussions dragged on for several years, but negotiations were finally concluded by David Lloyd George and his successor at the Board of Trade, Winston Churchill. The PLA finally came into existence in March 1909 as a non-profit self-governing trust responsible for 69 miles of tidal river and all the enclosed docks, but not the wharves. It inherited over 30 miles of quays and 17 passenger piers. The PLA initially employed 11,000 workers. Part of the, the 3,000 acres of PLA, PLA estate included a large plot here on Tower Hill, originally owned by the East India Company. And just a few yards from where we are right now, they created the massive headquarters building you see here. Its architect was Sir Edwin Cooper, who painted this watercolour of the finished building. You can still, still see the building down the corner, but it's now a very upmarket hotel. The PLA immediately started on a range of improvements and modernisation on the river and docks. However, as soon as many of the projects began, Britain declared war on Germany. The supply of manpower and materials began to dry up, and much work was delayed until the 1920s. Ships continued to grow in size, and at the end of the 19th century, it had become clear that an even deeper dock with a large entrance lock would be required at the Royal Docks to accommodate the biggest vessels. Land was available at North Woolwich for a new basin with a link into the Royal Albert Dock. Plans were completed soon after the creation of the PLA, but, what, but were one of those projects delayed by the First World War. When the King George V dock was eventually opened by the King himself in 1921, the Royal Ducks were the largest surface of impounded water in the world, with 11 miles of quays and hundreds of cranes. The, G the King George V was also the most modern dock in the world, able to simultaneously accommodate up to 15 of the largest ships of the time, with a massive lock of 800 by 100 feet. The shipbuilders Harlander Wolf also operated a ship repair workshop within the dock that could, that could accommodate vessels of up to 25,000 tonnes. Here, as you see in this photo, looking from west to east, the King George V on the, on the right, the Royal Albert on the left, and at the bottom of the screen, the link into the Royal Victoria Dock. 
1960, the writer Arthur Bryant, in his book Liquid History, wrote of the 211 dockside cranes of the, at the Royal Docks. The sight of them at work is one of the wonders of the modern world, he said. The interwar years were a peak period of ocean liners, and the PLA created a new passenger terminal which was opened at Tilbury in 1930 by Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. It subsequently became famous for emigrants leaving for Australia and other Commonwealth countries, and later for immigrants arriving from the West Indies and on ships such as the Windrush. It was in the 1930s that the Port of London reached its peak in both size and volume of trade. Ships came and went to every part of the world, bringing foodstuffs food stuff such as meat from New Zealand and Argentina and bananas from the West Indies. Raw materials and other goods arrived and British manufactured goods were sent out. At its height, the port comprised seven major dock groups with 700 acres of enclosed water space, 36 miles of quays and hundreds of acres of warehouses and transit areas. In addition, there were miles of independent wharves on the open river. Adolf Hitler knew very well about the importance of the Port of London to the British economy, so it became the first target of German bombing in the Second World War. My mother was living just close to the docks in September 1940 and would tell me stories of the bombers flying overhead in formation and the bombs falling all around on that first afternoon. As you can see in this aerial photograph, the docks were a sitting target, easily identifiable from the air. During the course of the war, there was substantial damage throughout the port, particularly where flammable goods were stored, such as, such as the timber at the Surrey commercial docks, the fuel depot at Thameshaven, and rum warehouses in various docks. Amazingly, throughout all the mayhem, the port continue, continued operating, and the two decades after the war were another golden period for the port. In 1955, there were 31,000 registered dockers, and in the early 1960s, 1,000 ships were entering the Port of London every week. Even in the 1970s, the port handled 21% of the nation's exports and 17% of imports. Yet it was really ill-prepared for the revolution in shipping that was about to take place. Working methods in many parts of the port had changed little since the Middle Ages. For centuries, ships were unloaded manually, sack by sack and crate by crate. Damage during the war provided the chance to modernise and become more efficient where possible. The PLA first witnessed forklift trucks used by American forces based in the docks during the war and saw that one man with a forklift could much more e efficiently and easily, um, efficiently and speedily move goods than a whole gang of dockers. But much bigger changes were on the horizon. Another American method used by their forces was the concept of roll-on, roll-off, or row row. Goods could be loaded on a trailer and pulled to the port by a truck. The trailer then rolled onto a ferry for the sea crossing, then rolled off on the other side to be pulled by another truck to its destination. In 1965, an agreement was reached between the USA, Canada and Denmark to standardise the size of containers so they could be transshipped across different countries and oceans by rail, road and sea. This led to a fundamental change in the way goods were, were moved. Thereafter, cargoes could be loaded at the factory, lifted by crane, and travel securely around the world on con in containers on specially built ships. Row row and containerisation did away with the need for warehousing at ports and for large numbers of dockers. Instead, they required large park spaces for waiting lorries. 
docks and wharves in London offered exactly the opposite and could not easily be adapted. Years of wildcat strikes by militant dockers had not, had not helped the port, but containerization and row-row were the final nails in the coffin for most of the docks and wharves. The East India docks were the first, and that was soon followed by St Catharines. The vast Hayes Wharf near London Bridge, known as the, the Larder of London, also closed in 1969, quickly followed by other wharves. One by one, all the docks closed except Tilbury. The final ship departed from the Royal Docks in 1981. Between 1966 and 1989, the number of registered dock London dockers fell from 24,000 to just 9,000. 10,000 jobs were lost in other businesses reliant on the port, and much of East London, London was left devastated. The only docks that could be adapted were Tilbury, downriver, remote from London, and with plenty of available space. At the end of the 1980s, Tilbury was the only remaining commercial facility operated by the PLA. In 1990, they decided it needed far greater investment and would, would be better served as in the private sector. The PLA could then concentrate on, the, on management of the river in its many forms, including pilotage and traffic control. Tilbury was therefore sold off and is now owned by the Scottish business Forth Ports, who are currently expanding the facilities there. The docks and wharves may have mostly closed, but the Port of London continues. It is no longer the biggest port in the world, and even within the UK competes with Felixstowe, Grimsby, Tees and Hartlepool, Southampton and Liverpool, all of which are smaller than Rotterdam. However, unlike some of its competitors, London still handles a diversified range of cargoes. You may be surprised to know that the Port of London is, is actually thriving, and trade has been growing in recent years. It has simply adapted and evolved. The Thames continues to be Britain's busiest river. There are now 70 terminals and docks of varying sizes operating along it between Fulham in the west and Canvey Island in the east. Way back in 1869, there was a major explosion at the Victoria Dock. Parliament then restricted the carriage of petroleum to no further upriver than Thurrock. In the late 19th century, the American company Standard Oil Esso, created a terminal at Perfleet, and petroleum and gas products continue to be delivered, stored and refined along that part of the river. After the demise of the docks, the creation of Docklands, where they had previously existed, was the start of a building boom in London, producing a big demand for, for construction materials, aggregates and timber, much of which arrives in the London area by ship. Forty ships unload each year at the Tate and Lowell Sugar Factory at Silvertown. Also, large amounts of London's waste is taken downriver by barge to be used to generate electricity or for recycling. These are just a few examples of the many types of cargo still, still passing through the port. Cruise liners now regularly bring visitors to London. The Thames is too small for the largest liners, but perfect for medium-sized cruise ships, some of which still depart from Tilbury's London Cruise Terminal. But the most significant growth in the Port of London in recent years is taking place right now on what was previously the Shell Oil Factory at Stamford Le Hope in the on the Thames Estuary. The vast bulk of imports into the UK now come in containers. Until recently, they mostly arrived at Felixstowe and Southampton, but that is now changing with the opening of London Gateway. London Gateway is operated by Dubai Ports and is specifically designed to receive the world's largest container ships. Several vessels can be comfortably accommodated there simultaneously, each carrying 20,000 containers or more. Typically, a container ship will travel around the world, dropping off some containers and picking up others at each port. 
Massive cranes and plenty of pre-planning mean that a ship can be speedily turned around at London Gateway and then be off to the next port on its voyage. I'd like to end with a very quick look at what, we can, what can still be seen of the old docks. There are actually quite a few surviving remnants if you know where to look. So there's the, the West India docks. And some of you may know these places. I don't, I don't think many people probably know about the, the, these houses here, which were built for the West India Dock Police. And they're very close to um, West Ferry DLR station, uh, or, or near the, um, the Docks Museum, uh, the London Docks at, uh, at Wapping. East India, East, India, East India Docks are probably the most difficult to find. There's, there's not much left, but, uh, but there are still remnants. I mean, this is now a, a nature reserve down here, the Surrey Commercial Docks. And I particularly like what they've done with the, the Norway Dock over there, where they've built a sort of community of houses actually into the dock itself. St. Catherine's Docks, I'm, I'm sure most of you know, because it's the, probably the best-preserved buildings of, of the, the old docks. Mill Dock at uh, the Isle of Dogs. And finally, the Royal Docks, which, of course, now London City Airport here. I've gone through almost 2,000 years of history in about 45 minutes, but I hope it's given you some idea about the history of the Port of London. As I mentioned earlier, you can read more about, about it in my book, and those are different ways to follow me or contact me. And you can also discover more about the Port of London by coming along to our meetings at the Docklands History Group, which meets at the Docklands Museum on the first Wednesday of every month. In fact, the subject of our next uh, meeting next week is about St. Catherine's before the creation of the docks. So hopefully we'll see some of you there sometime. Thank you. That was fascinating. You did a great job there, Peter. You covered so much information, uh, so many years of history in, uh, in just on a, uh, exactly on an hour. Um, okay, so what we do at this time, uh, Peter, is we tend to have a break. Um, so people in the Crutch Friars can go and recharge their glasses and the people on Zoom can go get a nice cup of tea, um, possibly with a little snifter of whiskey snuck into it. So um, let's come back, if, if I may, um, suggest about 15 minutes, about quarter past eight, and then we can take any, any uh, questions from here on Zoom or um, from those in the Crutch Friar. Okay? Welcome back, everybody. Hope you're all refreshed. Can I just, Peter, thank you for an excellent talk, absolutely excellent. The research that has gone into that is just superb, so brilliant. And I, I did think the slides were, were excellent as well. I've got a couple of questions myself. I'll just start off with one. Is the reason for your interest in the, the Port of London your, because of your family links? I think that's part of it. But as I said at the very beginning, I, was, you know, I spent many years uh, studying London, London's history, particularly the development of London. And then I began to realise through you know, lots of, sort of studying things and the docks were to, uh, to London. And, and so I think that you know, th those two things, the, 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 the historical point of view and also my family connections, as Tony said at the beginning, my going back in, in time, um, in the 17 and eight, early 1800s, my family on my mother's side were Thames watermen. Uh, ferrying people up and down or across the river, so you know that's that's one part of it. And then my my mother coming from, well, in fact, my, both my parents coming from the East End. So you know the whole sort of East End Thames thing is all part of my DNA, really. Okay. Any questions in the room? Uh, thank you so much for the talk. 
It's more of an observation than a question in that when we're interested in the Whitechapel murders, the 11 murders on file, a lot of them have quite strong connections, allegedly, or people have theories about connections to the docks and the river workers. So we have like the Portuguese Petalman theory and Tom Sadler, who was accused of the murder of Francis Coles, was a dock worker and so on. And we've also got the Thames Torso murders, which you know, clearly have a very strong river link. And I suppose it's just an observation of how useful it is to consider the river as a bit of a, a character in the whole uh, Whitechapel scene. Obviously, Whitechapel is so close to the docks, just north of St. Catherine's, you know, it's close to the London docks at Wapping and, and so on. So a lot of the people who lived in the East End in those days would have been somehow associated with the, with the docks. And this whole thing about that I mentioned about the call-on, where dockers back in the, the 19th century were really part-time workers. And so they probably had other things they did as well. To, and, and there was a lot of poverty and they were scraping around for money and so there would have been crime and all kinds of things. So, you know, there's a whole load of different uh, things that come together there that, that will be connected to Whitechapel and the murders and so on. Tony, do you have a question on Zoom? Thanks, Steve. I do have a very good question, and I've got a quick one as well. There's a, but before I get to that, just to say, Peter, there's a lot of very positive comments in the chat area here about how people enjoyed your talk. Very good, excellent information, uh, fascinating account of the doc's history, well-researched and presented. Um, interesting lecture, thoroughly enjoyed. So a lot of good feedback from us. The question I've got from Trevor is, from World War II, is there any record of an attempted U-boat mission against the London docks, or was there sufficient anti-submarine defences in place? Oh, that's, that's a big subject, actually. Not, not, no, U-boats didn't come up the, up the Thames, but they, they attempted to blockade the, the Thames as much as possible. And there were lots of, of course, lots of defences put along the Thames to, in the anticipation that there, there would be an invasion and that the, 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 the Germans would come up the Thames. So, um, so not, not specifically U-boats coming up the Thames. There were, I think there, if I remember rightly, there were actually at least one, if not a couple of U-boats that were actually caught um, out in, in the seas and, and brought back into London just as exhibits but not actually active as U-boats at that particular time. Actually, Peter, I think there could be one at Rochester, am I right? There's a, a <laughs> submarine in Rochester. I think it could be German as well, but I'm could not be. sure. Could be, I don't know. I don't know. Good one. Um, great, thanks for that. Um, I guess my question is about, I want to talk about that wonderful East India building that you showed in your presentation earlier on. What a magnificent building. Is that still standing? Uh, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was a, a very interesting building at the time. I mean, you could probably write a whole book on just that building and what was going on in there. Um, I mean, one of the things about the, um, the people who worked in it, there, there was a museum in there, for example, because um, all the ships bringing back... Um, uh, things from uh, from the, the Far East who were bringing back all sorts of curiosities and so they even had a museum within the, the building um, uh, to, to house all these different things um, but the, the what interests me about the, the people who worked there was that uh, they were called writers and they uh, so if you imagine in the days of sailing ships sh the East India ships generally went out to the Far East and came back 
within a year. So you know, if if you're if you're you 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 have an order, you want certain kinds of materials brought back, some silks or or whatever. So you write out an order, you give it to the ship. The ship has to go off to the far east. They have to find it. Um, then they had come back. And so you know, the communication was so lengthy over a period of a year. And so, and it, of course, it has to be very specific. If you think about commerce these days, business these days, you write an email and you get an instant up reply. And, and then you can sort of have a conversation. But when, the, when the, the reply comes back six months later, you can't have a very, the conversation doesn't flow. You, you have to be very precise. And so, actually, the, the, the writers at the East India Company in that building, that was actually the basis of what the British Civil Service. Because the, the government then, th those people were trained so highly in these things that the government then started to take those people on, particularly after the, 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 the uh, Britain took over India as a, a crown colony. And so, therefore, the, a lot of the people that worked for the East India Company became civil servants after that. So very interesting that what, 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 went, what went on in that building. Beautiful building. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I, I don't see any more questions on the chat, Steve. So okay. okay, we'll go back to the room here. By the yeah. way, Tony, there's a copy of the book here, which Peter has kindly signed. Oh, thank so you. So I've got it here. <laughs> it's uh, £25. Oh, is it? So, <laughs> any other, do, uh, do we have any other questions from here? Okay, absolutely. Friends like these, Peter. Right, hello. Thank you very much for the talk. I was quite interested in the whaling aspect. I mean, when we think of a whale in the Thames now, it's stranded. Yes. So are you saying that it was much more hospitable to whales? No, no, the, not, not at all. The, um, so the, the, the whales that were caught were, were caught well, initially off Greenland in the, in the north, around the, the Arctic, um, and later in the southern Atlantic as well. No, there was the, there was the occasional whale that came up the Thames, um, that particular whale that I showed in the in the in the picture was was caught in the in the Thames estuary, but presumably just like today, it was one that had gone astray. It didn't know where it was going, probably, and, and was caught by uh, by fishermen or whatever in, in the Thames estuary. There were there was the occasional whale that came up the Thames, but no, it wasn't it wasn't really hospitable. In, in fact, it was probably less hospitable in those days because because there was probably a lot, a lot more pollution in those days than there is now. No, well, the, the industry was in London. They were making they were making the thing. So basically, they ship would go out to Greenland and, and around those places to catch the whales, bring them back to London, where the whales were processed in the Greenland dock and various other places on the Thames for the bones the the oil, the baleen, um, all those things, then they, that was then sold to factories in London to make corsets or chairs or, or um, oil for lighting and that sort of thing. Yeah. Anybody else in this room? Thank you for a great talk. Do you have a favourite dock? Oh. Mine's St Catherine's. Just wondered if you had one. I suppose probably actually Rotherhithe. Rotherhithe, because... There are still quite a few big docks over there still existing. The, the Greenland dock that I mentioned earlier, that's a vast dock and actually underused. The south dock is quite nice with lots of boats in it. Uh, and actually, I think the most fascinating in some ways is probably Tilbury because it's still operating and it's a very busy place. I was, I was very lucky when I was writing the book because I wanted to find out more about Tilbury docks. And so I just phoned them. And the receptionist put me through to a secretary, 
and I explained that I, to the secretary I wanted to find out how the docks work and, you know, is there any information? And she said, hang on, I'll put you through to someone. And she put me through to the, the, um, the CEO of Tilbury Docks. And, and he said, oh, come along and see me and I'll take you round. And I went down there and um, he hired a tug to take me around the, the docks. And it was amazing, you know, seeing how the docks were working and he would explain everything to, to me. So that, that was amazing. I was very lucky. Anybody else in the room? No? I've got a question online, uh, Steve. Okay, Tony, do you want to do that and then you, you close? Yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah. Just a, a question from Anita. Um, Peter, do you know, has any underwater archaeology been done in the, in the Thames or the area of the Thames? Well, that, that's going on all the time. There, there are lots of mudlarks, of course. I mean, the, the thing about the Thames is it's a, it's a, the bed of the Thames is, is shit. Uh, so they still find Roman things, Saxon things, th things from all kinds of times. And uh, so things that you know, haven't been f seen for a thousand years suddenly mysteriously arrive, you know, because, because the mud, the, 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 the tide has taken away the mud. And then the tide puts the mud back and, and hides them again. So the, the, Thames, the, Thames, the bottom of the Thames is shifting all the time. Because there has been, there are various Roman ships that have been found on the, in the Thames. I think there's about three or four Roman ships uh, that have been discovered at different times. One was at County Hall. There was one there. The one at Blackfriars, I think. So, yeah, so, so there, there is quite a lot of archaeology that goes on. There's a, whole, there's a whole group of archaeologists who are connected to the Museum of London um, that, uh, that, that do all that all the time. So, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's quite sort of an ongoing project all the time. Actually, a guy called Gustav Milne, if you get to read any of Gustav's books, he's the sort of lead archaeologist of, of, of the Thames. Thank you, Peter. Does that answer your question, Manita? Thumbs up. Absolutely, yes. Thank you. <laughs> when you make it to London, Manita, you're going to have to go on the uh, London, one of the uh, sandbanks and have a look and see if you can dig up any old Victorian pipes and stuff like that, which, which you can dig up, yeah. Peter, that's all the questions from here. Okay. Um, but again, it's on an echo um, all the comments from both in Crutchfire and here online as well to thank you so much for such an excellent and fascinating talk. I'm delighted that I've got an overpriced copy of your book. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. Okay. laughs> and um, I think let's have one last round of applause. Peter, well done and thank you so much. And that was Peter Stone and the History of the Port of London. I'd like to thank Peter, Tony Power, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making the release of their talks possible. If you would like more information about the Whitechapel Society, future meetings, purchase books, or subscribe to the Whitechapel Society Journal, visit www.whitechapelsociety.com. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.